Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful body of believers. Thank you for your word now. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, for a Savior, for you, our Father, who worked through your Spirit to illuminate us so that we might behold that Savior in even greater brilliance. Do that now. We pray for Jesus' sake and for our sake. Amen. So the early 1200s, at least when we think of most of civilization at that time being clustered in Asia and Europe and the Middle East, the early 1200s was a time when the idea of a university came into existence. Uh, democracy was just talk. There wasn't any democracy existing at that uh, area of the world at the time. Uh, it was a time when Marco Polo wasn't a game, but an actual person. He was the Christopher Columbus exploring Asia. It was a time when the Tartars were invading Russia, when Genghis Khan was spreading the Chinese empire, the Mongolian empire across the globe. It was a time when if you walked up to someone and talked about the separation between church and state, they would look at you as though something had gone wrong with you. It was inconceivable to think of the state without the church and the church without the state. It had been that way for centuries and centuries. No one had known any other way of operating. It was a time when emperors were deposing popes and popes were deposing emperors. The greatest evangelistic tool at the time was military force. More people were converted through military force than through missionaries speaking the gospel. Sadly, it was also a time when uh, the military force, the combination of the state and church, uh, also uh, did some things that to this day we ought to feel ashamed of. The Spanish Inquisition would be one of those. The torturing of human beings in the name of Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. And not just heretics, people who taught differently than what was being taught at the time, but also Jews were part of the Spanish Inquisition as well. And yet what was interesting during that time, the one thing that dominated the 1200s was the Arab religion that was spreading all across the globe, Islam was all the talk of the 1200s. There was nothing more hated, even beyond the Inquisition, than Islam, especially in Europe. And during that time, God did something quite amazing through a guy by the name of Raymond Lowell. Raymond grew up in wealth and sensuality. Both of those things usually went together. And so it wasn't unusual in 1266, when Raymond was 32, and he was married, but composing a love song to another married woman that he was infatuated with. And while he was in the midst of composing this love song to her, he was uh, partly a poet, so that was what he did. Uh, he had a vision, which also wasn't uncommon in the 1200s, a vision of Jesus. And it just caused him to stop at his tracks, but his lust wouldn't let go of him, and Eight days later, he just thought, he just chalked it up to nothing and tried it again. And eight days later, he had a vision again, and he finally surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Along with that, he surrendered his wealth. He surrendered his status. Now, 
Raymond lived on an island off the coast of Spain. This island was primarily dominated by Muslims. He wasn't obviously a Muslim himself. He considered himself a Christian. And after giving his life to Christ for nine years, he just spent the time in uh, isolation. Now, let me just go on record by saying there are some things Raymond Lull did in his early days as a follower of Jesus that are reprehensible. We're going to set those aside and talk about other things in the midst of his learning curve, uh, like leaving his wife or, in this case, you know, causing his first uh, Arab translator to be killed. And none of these things he did intentionally. They just were the folly of someone who was operating all on his own as a missionary. But one of the things that Raymond did is he bucked the entire trend of the European community when it came to Islam, particularly even the trend in the church. Lowell believed that not by force of might, but rather by an attracting light, if I can put it that way, is how people are one to Christ. And so he began using his intelligence, which is what he was good at, uh, from the age of uh, 40 all the way until about 55 and later on, he would produce books, over 300 books, most of them in Arabic because he'd learned Arabic. He didn't just produce books on theology. He wrote novels. He wrote poems. He wrote uh, uh, several volumes on medicine. Uh, he wrote volumes on navigation. He's credited with inventing the mariner's compass. He was a brilliant man. And then he decided that schools needed to be uh, put together to train missionaries. He believed that if these missionaries could engage Muslims with fair discussion, a novel idea, they would show the superiority of Christianity. Those efforts were going fairly well, but at the age of 55, he finally decided he needed to go to the Muslim world at the heart of it. The island that he lived on wasn't too far from Algeria, so he sailed across the Mediterranean, and at age 55, he made his first venture into Algeria. It was so dangerous, and he was so scared, he jumped on the first ship back. By the time he got back, he was emboldened again, and he went right back again and stayed until he was arrested and deported. And he came back home, but after some 15, 18 years, at the age of 71, he went back to Algeria again, secretly this time. But once again, he was found out. He was arrested. He was sentenced to death, but it was only through a friend who was a philosopher that he was saved and was given a life sentence. Eventually, the government decided to uh, depose him several years later, and he went back home. And he could have stayed there. But at the age of 78, he secretly went back to Algeria. After a year, he was discovered, and he was stoned to death. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because Raymond Lull is part of our family photo album. There's many of them like this. And there are characteristics that sort of unite everybody together. There is the characteristic of dissent, giving up his wealth, giving up his life of sensuality surrendering his life, giving up comfort, giving up what's familiar, giving up what's safe, giving up reward, giving up all of those things. And then there is this idea of costly incarnational service. It wasn't just enough to lob the grenade of evangelism over the wall. He had to come out from his compound. He had to be among the people. He had to learn their language. He had to understand their beliefs. He had to get inside of their skin, incarnational. And he did so at great cost. And he, all, he did all of this for the purpose of rescuing others. The story could be told of Amy Carmichael in India, Harriet Tubman here in the 
during the slavery movement in the South. It could be told of uh, Roland Bingham uh, into the interior of Africa. And it could be told by millions and millions of other people who never even made the history books and whose sacrifices weren't quite so dramatic, but still nonetheless, they were all these things together, descent, costly incarnational service for the rescuing of others. And today we come to a passage in Philippians 2 which captures with such theological depth and clarity exactly where this came from. Because see, this story began with our founder in Bethlehem. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. You actually have the text there in your bulletin too. And we start right into it here in this section in verse 5 when Paul says to the Philippians, and by Paul, the Holy Spirit saying to you and I, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, this mind of descent, of surrender, this mind of humility. Now, some of your Bible translations may say it differently. It may say, adopt this attitude which, is in, which, is, which was in Christ Jesus. Well, however you say it, the concept is the same. And that is that there is this mindset, and by mind I mean this, if I can put it this way, it's a way of looking at life that, regulated, that regulates our responses to life. This mind, this attitude, it's a way of looking at life that regulates our responses to life. And, and I love the way the English Standard Version says it here that um, this is yours in Christ Jesus. And if, if that doesn't uh, convince you, just look at how verse 1 starts out of Philippians 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ. Now, by the way, what's the answer to that question? Yes, okay. So it, it could easily say, because there's encouragement in Christ, because there's love in Christ, because there's participation in the Spirit in the Christ, because you're in Christ, let me tell you, if I can put it in my words, how to activate your superpower called humility. And that's what we're going to see today. Jesus, Jesus is going to show us how to activate what it is that we have in Christ. The first thing we're going to see here, and by the way, for just a few minutes here, hopefully less than 10, we're going to get into the deep end of the pool theologically. So hang in there. Here we go. Um, first of all, it says, although Jesus Christ was in the form of God. This may not be news for some of you, but it is news. It certainly was news back then, and it could be news for some of you here today. Though he was in God form, Jesus was equal with God. Uh, it's, the, it's one of the hardest things to understand. Sometimes we come up with all these sort of word pictures to explain what we call the Trinity. The idea that God is a three-person being. There has always been, for all of time, and even before there was time, the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's hard to understand that. We're a one-person being. God is a three-person being. The Son is distinctly, the Son is someone totally different than the Father. The Holy Spirit is someone totally different than the Son and the Father. And these three beings adore one another, enjoy one another. And this triune community, as it were, was a place of safety. There was no threat in the triune community. It was a place of intimacy. 
It, it was a place of unlimited power, unlimited knowledge. That was what the Son of God was experiencing forever and ever and ever and never knew anything different. But he did not do something. He did not count equality with God, a thing to hold on to, to be grass. He didn't do as humans naturally do. He didn't hold on to it for his own advantage. He didn't hold on to all that security, all that intimacy, all of that unlimited power and knowledge. Instead, what he did is he emptied himself. He'd emptied, he emptied himself. He laid aside his privileges. He, if I can put it this way, well, actually, I won't put it this way. Someone else did. He voluntarily didn't access his status. Now, some of you may know this, but there, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. There have been thousands and thousands of pages written on this one statement in the Bible. What happened when the Son of God emptied himself? It all pivots on one little Greek word. We're not going to go through those pages this morning. What I'm going to say is this. Jesus did not cease to be God when he became a human being. The Son of God did not cease to be God when he became Jesus, a human being. In fact, like so many places in the Bible, whether it's how long is a day in Genesis chapter 1 or so many other places in the Bible, the sad part of intense controversy is that we lose the beauty of what's right smack in front of us. It's not about what Jesus emptied himself of. It's the fact that he emptied himself. And years ago, thankfully, a number of people in our photo album got together. For years and years, they wrestled over all of this information they'd learned from the New Testament after the New Testament came together. And they wrestled over trying to understand what exactly does the Bible say about Jesus? There were multiple interpretations competing for themselves. And our brothers and sisters did us a tremendous favor 1,700 years ago when they gathered in Nicaea and put together this creed that has stood the test of time ever since by every single branch of Christianity. And here's just one statement of it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, in case you're wondering, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Do you get the emphasis there, how important that was? Make no mistake about it. Jesus is not less than the Father. He's not less than God. He's not, he's not a temporary God. This is who he is. And I want you to notice that one phrase there, that the Son of God was begotten, not made. God the Father didn't make a son because the Son always was. God the Father didn't make a son like we make sons. There was a time when all of us were not. There was a time when all of us didn't exist. Not so with the Father, Son, and Spirit. So the relationship with the Father and Son 
was begotten, not made. In other words, it always was. It just simply was the way it was. He didn't come into being like we come into being. Bethlehem, however, Bethlehem, however, was the beginning of something because the Son of God became something he was not, a human being. And he didn't become a human being for a moment. The Son of God, just, boy, here's, here's a deeper, deeper into the pool, but we won't go there today. I'll just leave it as a dot, dot, dot for you to think about. The Son of God came to be among us and came to be one of us forever. I told you it was going to get deep, but here's, what, here's how... Here's how Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself by limiting himself, by taking the form of a servant. In fact, three times it says it to us in our passage here. It says, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. Three times we're told that in case we miss it. And stop for just a moment and ponder this. God Almighty in diapers. Jesus, able to stop the worst evil ever committed or ever will be committed on this planet, his own death, and yet not stopping it. Yielding it to, yielding his life up for something that was worth it, our rescue. So when we put this all together in Philippians 2, this is what we have. The Son of God, Jesus, voluntarily surrendering his status and power and caging himself in the limitation of humanity to lift up others. That's what's happening in Philippians 2. That's what happened in Bethlehem. This is the beautiful picture of what humility is. Now, during the time of the writing of the Philippians, people are living under a Roman emperor. Uh, we don't know what that's like. We, we know what it's like when a handful of people collect too much power. We hate it. But we have no idea what it's like when just one or two people have all power and have absolute power and there's nothing you can do about it. In fact, in Isaiah 14, there's a picture of the, uh, the leader of Babylon. And Isaiah says, uh, in, in sort of indicting him, he says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. Just listen to the way this person is drunk on power. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. Roman emperors were meant to be worshipped. The Greek name for a Roman emperor that was only to be used for the emperor was Adonai. Jesus, the Christ, the Adonai. Lord, this is, the, this is what happens with power as people get drunk on it. In 1830, uh, a Frenchman came over here uh, to, to uh, marvel at the wonder of democracy. I mean, our democracy wasn't even 100 years old yet. By the way, we weren't the only ones who had a revolution. France had a revolution, but it didn't turn into democracy. So maybe this is our solution. They sent him over here, and he, he, he wrote this amazing book, Democracy in America. He marveled at how it worked, 
how power was distributed, not concentrated. But he said something just in passing that has become prophetic. Power will always concentrate without a solid moral compass. And democracy will fall apart without a high morality on the part of the people. 1832, that's what happens with power. And that's why we need humility. And so let me just talk to you a little bit about, let's get practical here. How do we activate humility? We do it by releasing our grip on our advantages. We all have advantages. I could, I, I could point them out to several people in this room. You have an advantage just by being born in this time in history. You have an advantage by just being born in America. You have an advantage if you're a parent. You have an advantage if, you're, if you have a job. You have an advantage if you have any kind of health at all, et cetera, et cetera. We have all kinds of advantages, all kinds of things that give us a sense of status. And here's one of the ways to get at them. What embarrasses you? And why? What embarrasses you? And why does it embarrass you? Let me ask it another way. What makes you feel okay about yourself? What makes you fit in? What gives you some degree of protection from suffering so you don't wake up every morning in a panic attack? Think of this as like claws on a cat clinging to a couch. These are the things that we cling to. These are the, these are the things that give us a sense of power. Uh, these are the things that give us a sense of control, a sense of security. They are impossibly hard to release our grip on these things because we're preoccupied with these things, because these things mean everything to us, because our life revolves around these things. And so here's just some suggestions. You can come up probably with better ones, but here's some suggestions how to declaw yourself. Waking up every day and pledging to yourself that I will serve at the king's pleasure today, no matter the assignment. No matter the assignment. You never know what you're going to wake up to every day, right? Expecting God to expose your blind spots in life by sometimes the very person you don't want that blind spot exposed. Someone you can't even imagine uh, pointing out something in your life. Much like David when Nathan came into his courtroom and said, you are the man. Not feeling guilty about all your God-given things that make your life good. Not feeling guilty about those but living on call to give any of them away no matter what. These are ways we sort of position ourselves. Let me give you a couple others. Repenting again and again of the same sin in your life until you get tired and tired of it and then doing it again and again and again. <laughs> Assuming every encounter, every endeavor, every event, you have probably sinfully contributed to that and being ready to own it. Expecting people and experiences to disappoint you and to hurt you so that your enjoyment of and contentment in the Lord has room to expand. 
These are just some of the ways that I think we can sort of let go of these things that mean everything to us and give us all kinds of security and affirmation and identity, this status that keeps humility from growing inside of us. In one sense, humility is just simply owning who you really are, a sinner, a saint, and a sufferer. Every morning you wake up and every night you go to bed, you are a continuing sinner. There is not a day that you've not sinned. There never will be. Own that. Embrace that. Don't be shocked by that. God isn't. But you're also a saint by exchange. Did you know that what we celebrate here in the bread and cup is we celebrate the fact that we have come to Christ, we who are in Christ, we who are believers, we are people who have showed up at Christ's feet at the cross and said, I'm a sinner, I don't deserve to ever be in your presence. And he says, let me give you my righteousness so you can be forever and I will take all of your sin, past, present, and future. In that great exchange, we have been forever declared in God's sight a saint and he always looks at us through Christ. We are a saint by exchange, even as we experience being a continuing sinner, but we also are a forever needy sufferer who's utterly dependent upon other people around us. I love the fact that someone pointed out to me that the word humility comes from the Latin word humus. Okay, that's not that brilliant. Do you know what humus means? Dirt. Hello, dirt. We're all vulnerable. Every night, we try to go to sleep, and it's a reminder that we're not God. Rich Bullins, the popular Christian sing, songwriter in the uh, 70s, <laughs> said this, every time you go to church, you're confessing again to yourself, to your family, to the people you pass on the way there, to the people who will greet you that you don't have it all together. That's what you're confessing. You're here to say, I don't have it all together. And that you need their support. You need their direction. You need some accountability. You need some help. That's what we do. We come here and we remind ourselves of who we are and why we need one another. So it's surrendering your status. It's also becoming a slave to others for their exaltation in Jesus. It's laboring to get in the skin of another so that you know how to serve them. It's laboring to get in the skin of another so you know how to serve them. It involves a whole lot of patient listening and asking questions and suspending judgment. And it's being willing to travel through the sewers of being unnoticed, disrespected, and unrewarded with the expectation that your suffering may very well lead another knee to bow to Jesus Christ. I was recently listening to someone um, who was sharing about their family. And as, the, as they were talking, I just thought, what a mess. What a complex mess this is. I, it, just, it just felt like I was sitting in my office and the whole office was turning into quicksand and I was being drawn into this scenario that was going to cause me so much time, so much complexity, so much suffering. 
the longer this person was sharing the story, the, it, I just physically felt like my shoulders were collapsing. I wanted to run. I couldn't wait for the time to be over. I was straining in prayer. Lord, help me listen. Help me have a heart here. Help me listen. You see, anybody can cut a check to charity. It takes the superpower of humility to jump into the mess of someone else's life and know it might swallow you up. Now, I want to say something super important right here. There are some of you in this room, I, th- I think I know who most of you are. <laughs> there are some of you in this room who shouldn't listen to what I'm about to say. Some of you are sinfully overly productive. Some of you are sinfully overly committed to too many needs in your life. I'm not talking to you right now. You need to just press pause. You need to say no, because every need is not a call. Okay? Every need is not a call. But for many of us, I suspect that we are simply partying on the rooftop when what we need to do is leap off the side to activate our superpower and descend into the people's messy lives without judgment and with an ocean of stubborn love and stubborn grace that is at our disposal because we belong to Christ. That's the exciting challenge of a passage like this. Now, I want to say one more thing here, but I think it's going to be a perfect place for us to pause for a moment to ask the worship team to come up and the guys serving communion. One thing that should be encouraging after a heavy challenge like what you just heard. And again, if you're visiting with us, the bread and cup here are for everyone who calls Jesus their Savior and their King. Uh, This is your table. This isn't our table. Uh, And this is where we come to be nourished in Christ and where we come to uh, feed on his humility. But in Philippians 2, at the end of verse 8 and before verse 9, there is in my mind a place where there should be sacred silence. He was obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, period. Just just sit there. No human being has ever suffered or will ever suffer as much as Jesus did on the cross. We can't even comprehend it. And yet because he did, verse 9, That great descent into humility designed by the Father and the Spirit and the Son to to begin the end of darkness forever resulted in the resurrection, the big bang of light that has never stopped expanding and will never stop expanding until every single human being that ever came into existence bows their knee before Jesus, willingly or unwillingly but all knees will bow before him. See, humility 
as someone has said, I don't know who, but is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And I consider that to be freedom. Wonderful, glorious freedom. It's ultimately surrendering your self-exaltation for Christ's exaltation. We'll never be good at humility. By the way, that's not the goal here today. We'll never be good at humility. We'll be like the beginning of the Spider-Man show when he's trying to leap from building to building and mostly hitting into him. That's as good as we get at humility. But Christianity is not about being gooder. It's about being freer. Freed from being preoccupied with yourself. Free to lose your life so that you can gain your real life. And the more we die to ourself, the more we give light and oxygen to our new self in Christ. That's how we activate our superpower. That's how we activate humility. Let's take a moment. Then I'll pray and you come. Father, you and the Son and the Spirit conspired together out of enormous love and great cost to save your own creation that not only took no interest in you, but despised your rule over them. Free us now from that as we take of this bread and cup and bless us with an even richer experience of dying to ourselves that Christ may be more obvious in us. We come in his name. Amen.